Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Uh, no, Happy New Year, everyone. It is so good to be meeting together again, and I um, hope that you guys had a really great Christmas, great New Year celebrations, and um, again, it's so good to, to see your faces. Dave, thank you so much for, for reading those passages. Um, don't worry, we're not going to go through all of that. We're going to tackle a lot more. <laughs> um, so these two passages... Uh, one, one from uh, 2 Kings 14 is a passage about a time where the kingdom of Israel is expanding geographically to the extent that it would, would have been under Solomon about 110 years prior to that. The other, in Matthew 12, records generations later when Israel is occupied and ruled by Rome, which was the power of the day. They're two very different times and different situations. But did you notice a common thread? They both refer to Jonah, this intriguing prophet whose name evokes an incredible array of preconceptions and feelings just at its mention. So let me ask, and we're just diving straight into the sermon here. Um, When you think of Jonah, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Perhaps you visualized a giant fish or a whale or a sea creature of some sort. Maybe someone being cast into tumultuous waters And if so, you're definitely not alone. But what else comes to mind? Because the entire account of Jonah and whatever waterbound creature or event is recorded accounts for roughly 25% of its four chapters. And this minor prophet um, has so, so much more to say than just a story about a fish or a bit of chaos. Now, you may recall from Malachi, our series a few months back, that we said minor prophets are only minor in in their word count. But when it comes to the content, their major themes, they have major relevance for our lives today. And Jonah is certainly no different. So let's dive in. In 2 Kings 14, we have the mention of a prophet of Yahweh who prophesied that during the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel's borders and economic prosperity would reach the heights experienced during the reign of Solomon in 930 BC. This blessing is despite the fact that Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, was running the kingdom of Israel towards spiritual ruin. Let me say that one again. Jeroboam was running the kingdom of Israel towards spiritual ruin, just like the kings before him. So, 2 Kings 14.24 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. Now, as a result of Jeroboam's refusal to lead his people back to Yahweh, despite the Lord graciously blessing them during his reign, Yahweh also raised up Amos to prophesy the coming judgment on Jeroboam and the ev- eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the ransacking by Assyria. And that's in Amos 2 and also Amos 7. In Matthew 12, you could also see Luke 11, Yeshua casts out a demon, 
which leads the surrounding crowds to wonder, is he the son of David? Now that's a messianic term. They're asking if he is the anointed one who would restore this kingdom to the glories that they experienced under David and Solomon. The question in the crowd prompts the Pharisees to accuse Jesus of using the power of Beelzebub. And in response, he ultimately says, if I cast out the demon by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now in Matthew 16, we have another similar account of Pharisees and Sadducees asking for a sign and Yeshua replying in similar fashion, evoking the imagery of the sign of Jonah. And later, he warns the disciples, beware of the leaven and the teaching of the Pharisees. And then later he clarifies that when he says leaven, it is the teaching. And that indicates that despite their zeal for the Lord, the religious leaders of that time were running the people of Israel towards spiritual ruin. As a side note, we can get so hung up on Christ's reference to the sign, to what the sign of Jonah referred to as being either literally swallowed by a sea creature or not, that we miss the bigger picture. If Christ expelled the demon by the power of God, then the kingdom of God had come upon this generation and their rejection of the Messiah would make all of their previous trials pale in comparison. And my pages are all out of order, that's awesome. <laughs> now, why, is, why would they pale in comparison at rejecting Christ? Hebrews 1 speaks about how in the past Yahweh spoke through the angels and the prophets, but now he had spoken directly to them through his Son. And rejection of someone who speaks on Yahweh's behalf will condemn them, but rejection of Yahweh himself will damn them. Thankfully, God knew all of this in advance, and he was running human history toward revival, the summing up of all things under Christ that would eventually un unite even Jews and Gentiles in himself. So what significance does this have for Jonah? During the time of Jeroboam, God had been exceedingly gracious despite the fact Jeroboam was a wicked king. God expands the geographic, the economic prosperities as if to say, you could have this and so much more if you would seek me. But Jeroboam follows a long line of kings who continually reject the Lord and the people suffer. Less than 50 years after his death, the 10 tribes of Israel would be overtaken by the Assyrians, just as God said they would. So Jonah, he is an actual prophet. He is the son of Amittai, as we have attested to in both of those passages. It's from the town of gath whom Yahweh spoke through when he saw the affliction of the Israelites, and he brought blessing and prosperity to the people, despite, again, the defiant wickedness of their king. And he would be judged, Jeroboam would, for his persistent refusal to follow the Lord. And that was according to Amos. But as he was the leader of that kingdom, the entire kingdom also fell under that judgment. Jonah is also the prophet referred to by Yeshua after the Pharisees accuse him of casting out a demon by the power of Beelzebub. They ask for a sign or an, att an attesting miracle to prove his statement, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In both passages, we see different 
types of human leadership, kingly and religious. They are confronted by the word of the Lord. In Jonah 1.1, it's the word of the Lord through a prophet. In Matthew 12 and 16, it's the word put on flesh, dwelt among them, speaking directly to them. And when the word of the Lord is proclaimed, those who hear it are faced with the same choice that Yahweh gave Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 30 verses 15 and also 19 through 20. He says, look, I'm presenting to you today with on the one hand life and good. The Hebrew there is tov for good. And on the other, death and evil. The Hebrew there is ra. Might make you think of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then verse 19, he says, I call on heaven and on earth to witness against you that I have presented you with life and death, with the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life that you will live, you and your descendants. Loving Adonai, your God, paying attention to what he, is, he says and clinging to him, for that is the purpose of your life. On this depends the length of the time you will have in the land that Adonai swore he would give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the acceptance of the word of the Lord would lead to blessing, flourishing, and renewed life, revival. The rejection of the word of the Lord would lead to spiritual decline, destruction, and death, or ruin. From the two passages which speak of Jonah, one might anticipate a prophet that follows in the very distinguished line of mouthpieces used by Yahweh, from Moses to Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha, and in the same vein as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3, we, we read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Over the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to unpack this whole story of Jonah a little bit. But before we dive in, let's help set the scene of when Jonah lived, when he ministered, the historic context in which his ministry occurs. Then we'll go ahead and launch into some of the key themes that we'll discuss throughout our, our study of this book. We'll provide an outline and then we'll look a little more deeply at uh, verses one through three. So I hope you guys are all ready to stay for the next four hours. Just kidding, we'll, we'll cruise through. Now, Jonah lived around 823 to 720 BC. His prophetic ministry was during the, the reign, the 41 year reign of Jeroboam II, which was roughly from 793 to 753 BC. During Jeroboam II's reign, Yahweh was also speaking through Hosea and Amos. But where does this account fit into the whole narrative storyline of Scripture? Since the first rebellion in the garden, where mankind decided to reject God's definition of good and evil, whatever man runs tends toward ruin. Relationships become severed vertically with God 
horizontally, horizontally between mankind and other people. Life is taken. Authority is abused to retain power rather than to promote peace. The result of spiritual death becomes death to every facet of the physical material world, uh, realm. This is the constant theme of Scripture established in Eden and woven throughout its entirety. When mankind run things, they tend toward ruin. However, Yahweh loves his image bearers, and since the fall where Adam and Eve lost their relationship and chose death over life, Yahweh has been running human history toward revival. His plan climaxed in the, in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Emmanuel, God with us, which is foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, recorded in the Gospels, and will find its re resolution in the renewed heavens and renewed earth, which is foretold in Yahweh's revelation to the Apostle John. Today, we are in an age of hope, and hope is a confident expectation that what Yahweh has promised will surely come to pass. And we can say this with confidence because the scriptures attest to it, because the lives of believers around the globe, our lives included, also attest to it. Throughout human history, our God is faithful. He is loving. He is righteous and just. He desires that none should perish. And that brings us to the theme of our series, Running toward revival, the steadfast love of Yahweh toward all. And I would throw in this other little line because you know me, I like to throw in extra lines. That's, that's the love of Yahweh towards the deviant and the defiant alike. So God's plan for restoration involves him creating a people through whom he would work out his plan. He calls Abraham and he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we know from Galatians 3.8, Galatians 3.16, that he is referring to one particular seed, Christ, who would come through that line. As promised in Genesis 17, Abraham becomes the father of many nations, but the blessing passed through the line of Isaac, through his son Jacob, who had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years or so on. Now under Moses, God covenants himself as like a marriage contract, that type of a con covenant. He covenants himself not only to an individual, but to an entire nation, an entire people, and says when they walk with him, they will enjoy life and good and blessing. When they reject him, they will embrace death and evil, the curse. This is a thrust of Moses' final exhortation in Deuteronomy 30, before God raises up Joshua to lead the people into the land. As Joshua is about to die, he also exhorts the people, seek Yahweh with their whole heart, to choose life and good rather than death and evil. Now, as a quick side note, God does not raise up a successor for Joshua after this. God wants all of Israel to remain faithful to, his, to the covenant that they've made with him and that he has made with them of their own accord, keeping his commands to promote peace and flourishing. They were to offer sacrifices to keep them thankful for what he has provided and also to remind them of their sin and their need of him. 
They were to enjoy the feasts and the festivals, each of which would have been multi-sensory reminders of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God does not want any barriers between he and his people. He is their God, he is their king, he is their provider and their protector. Now these feasts and these festivals would have been absolutely crucial, especially considering most people didn't read and write. So how do you hand down the traditions? By locking it into your memory, repeating it every year with certain foods, certain events, and constantly retelling. And as they passed these down through the generations, the hope is that they would remain faithful. Unfortunately, after Joshua and his generation die, the next generation forgets what, what Yahweh has done. They forsake him as their God, which leads exactly to as he said it would. It leads to their ruin. This starts off the cycle of the judges, where the people would be handed over to other nations. They would cry out to God. He would raise up a judge to help restore shalom, peace, wholeness, and flourishing. And God did all of this out of a desire that Israel would return and remain in covenant faithfulness and continue being blessed in order that through them, all the nations of the earth might be blessed, going back to Genesis 12. Now, after about 400 years of this cycle, Israel grows weary, but rather than running toward Yahweh, worshiping him alone in sincerity and truth, choosing life and good, they ask their final judge, Samuel, for a human warrior king, just like all the nations around them. They choose death and evil. In Samuel's final message to them, his, his final exhortation, he says to them, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, he, here is the king you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has sent a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Whereas previous covenants that Yahweh had made with, with Israel were between him and the nation of Israel. Now they have another earthly mediator, a king. Israel has constantly rejected Yahweh as their God rather than worship, revere, and walk with him. Now they have wholeheartedly, as a nation, rejected them also as their king. And they have asked for a human to stand in his place now the faithfulness of the people will determine the faithfulness of their king. And the faithfulness or faithlessness of the king will determine the faithfulness or the faithlessness of the, kingdom, of the people. If the king chooses death and evil, Ra, over life and good, Tob, the nation of Israel will suffer the consequences. Their first king, Saul, is proven to be the king that they asked for. Not a particularly good one. He has a good run of it, but he is not confident in the Lord. Takes matters into his own hands, 
And as a, as a consequence, the kingdom is ripped from him and given to David, who's referred to as a man after God's own heart. But clearly, he also makes his mistakes, which end tragically in destroying his family. And after Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided, with the ten tribes of the north following Jeroboam, who builds two golden calves at the opposite ends of, the, of his kingdom and declares them to be the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He forces idolatry and false worship of false gods and leads his kingdom into ruin. The explicit promotion of idol worship is perpetuated with one king after the next rejecting Yahweh, implicating their people in their own sin. During this time, Yahweh constantly sends prophets to remind them of their special relationship with him and offering the same choice as Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and later Elijah, would, uh, who passes the mantle on to the prophet of Elisha. And the prophets constantly recount God's plea to Israel through mo what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30. I've presented you with life or with death, with blessing or the curse. Choose life so that you will live and your descendants will live, loving Adonai your God, paying attention to what he says and clinging to him, for that is the purpose of your life. Now, every one of these stories throughout scripture has successes and they have failures. In scripture, we see that when mankind runs things according to their own wisdom or their own desires, they tend toward ruin. We also see how in his steadfast love for all, God is faithful to run human history towards revival. We also see in the many stories the process of maturing in faith, walking with Yahweh over time. You may have heard it said before, God can draw a, a straight line with a crooked stick. And isn't it a joy that he does? Because otherwise he would never use someone like me. In the history of Israel, God draws his line of blessing and promise with many crooked sticks. And I know from my own life, there are many times where he has drawn a straight line in spite of me. This, of course, is not to say that we should go on sinning, that grace may abound, but that we should be encouraged that it is he who is at work within us and he will work out all things together toward the good of those who love him and have been called according to his good purposes. If we follow our own way, we run toward ruin, death, and evil. But we do not need to be defined by that. For Yahweh has run human history towards revival, and he wants to run our own personal history towards revival as well, to revival, to life, and to good. So where does Jonah fit into this? He is the first prophet that we hear about after the death of Elisha. We know two of the prophecies that, that Jonah made. One was the expansion of Israel under Jeroboam in 2 Kings 14, despite Jeroboam being a wicked king who was running his nation towards spiritual ruin and towards just utter ruin. And we know his other ridiculously short, insanely vague message to Nineveh in Jonah 3:4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Man, what an inspiring message. Now, in between these two prophetic moments, 
Jonah is sent by the word of the Lord and he is sent off by the word of the Lord in verse one and chapter three, verse one. He is defiant toward the Lord in verses three through 16 of chapter one. Even to the point of his slumber in verse five, even his, his attempted suicide in verse 12, and possibly, possibly, Jonah is also repentant. Maybe. That comes in chapter two. After his ministry in Nineveh, Jonah is indignant. He's self-righteous. And he is vitriolic towards God being gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger and abounding in love. He's so vitriolic toward this that he would rather die than see his enemies delivered. Man, I hope no one else is looking in a mirror right there. He is clearly a very imperfect, very interesting, very human, and very relatable prophet. In Jonah, Yahweh wants to teach us about himself and also about ourselves. Jonah is very much a mirror into our own attitudes and also into our own actions at different times. But that leads us to the question, how do we read Jonah? What's its genre? Generally, there are three ways to interpret Jonah as a book, either a historic narrative, the allegorical approach, or a historical parable approach. So a historic narrative believes basically that the events did in fact happen as they were recorded. The allegorical approach believes that Jonah is not historic at all, but is useful to teach moral and theological truths. So you could say that the allegorical approach is saying that it's a useful, useful myth. That is not our view. A third approach is the historic parable, a story that is de developed around a historic figure or events, but possibly exaggerated to reinforce moral and theological truths. Now, there are conservatives who believe that one can maintain the inerrancy of scripture without affirming the historical accuracy of Jonah at every point by understanding that the original reader would not have expected the details to be understood exactly literally due to it being written in a more parabolic style. We take the view as a, as a teaching team, we take the view that while there are clear elements of parable, none would necessitate seeing the details within Jonah as being historically inaccurate. Furthermore, with genre and questions of historicity, while they are important, they're not essential to the interpretation of the book's theological message. For example, whether or not Jonah is, was literally in a fish or a whale does not take away from what Christ said to challenge the religious leaders in Matthew 12. He clearly had cast out a demon by the Spirit of God their asking for another sign just substantiated their unbelief and their rejection of him. Now, there are three key themes that we're gonna be tra tracing through Jonah. Firstly, God's love. God is the God of all nations. God said to Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Israel was to be a vessel and a platform of God's self-revelation and redemption for all people. That's why Jesus was a Jew. But here's the thing. We all know of this mystery revealed 
because we are on this side of the cross. In the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament stage of progressive revelation, it wasn't always this clear. And it's in that sense that Jonah, occurring where it does in the course of redemptive history, really stands out from the other books, particularly the other prophets. Secondly, we'll look at God's power. God is the God of all creation. If God is the God of all nations, he is likewise the God of all creation. His universal concern for all people is matched by his universal sovereignty over all things. He has the power to bring about his love and his concern. If one thing is clear from Jonah, it's that God's plans cannot be thwarted. Jonah tries to run away from God's presence and God is sovereignly present in and over all creation and he uses that creation to providentially push Jonah to fulfill his purpose, particularly by sending a wind, by arranging the results of the lots that the pagans cast, by appointing a great fish to swallow Jonah and then vomit him back up in the right place, by raising up a vine and then a worm to eat that vine and also a scorching east wind. God commanded all of these things. Yes, God is the God of Israel, but he is also the God of Nineveh because he is the God of the entirety of creation. And through Jonah's negative example, we are instructed not to resist God's sovereign will. Thirdly, we'll also look at God's providence. Implicit in the affirmation of who God is is a rebuke to Jonah and to the nation of Israel that he represents. As a prophet, he should have been the pinnacle of spirituality. However, this servant did everything he could to avoid fulfilling the divine command. Like Peter to those at Pentecost who said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And that's in Acts chapter two. It is also an echo of what Joseph said to his brother. Brothers, what man meant for evil against me, God meant for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's in Genesis 50. So when you pull together the other themes of God's love and God's sovereignty, we see here how God's providence is exerted toward the realization of his goal to bestow his grace and redeem a sinful people. We see this in both the mission to Nineveh and the missionary, Jonah, as both receive a second chance The fish was not an instrument of God's judgment, but of God's salvation of Jonah, since it saved Jonah from death of drowning. Taken together, God's love, God's power, and God's providence, as well as the sign of Jonah spoken by Jesus, we could sum all of that into a singular summary, which is Jonah 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So as we travel through Jonah you can basically break it down into two scenes. Scene one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. This scene is mostly focused on the rescue of the the missionary, so to speak. And scene two, where God again repeats this, 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. This scene is largely on the land and it focuses on the rescue mission itself. In our last few minutes, we'll dive into uh, Jonah chapter one, verses one through three, and I'll just pull out a few, a few things that have really struck me and been really encouraging to me personally. Um, so it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down in, into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah, Hebrew, it's the word Yonah, which means dove. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 8 when Noah sends out a Yonah, a dove. According to Rabbi Stephen Bob, the dove represents the possibility of new beginnings. And we see in Jonah and in Nineveh, second chances. It is also a symbol of peace, Hebrew shalom. Now, shalom is not merely the absence of hostility. That's what I generally think of straight away is, okay, I don't have any enemies, so I must be at peace. That's part of it but it's a really small facet. Shalom is positively defined in the Lexham Theological Dictionary as a state of being whole. It is complete, it is good. There's no aspect that is lacking. Everything is flourishing. It is the picture of Eden summed up in one word, right with God, right with each other, to the point of being completely laid bare, completely transparent, completely unashamed. And not in, not in this modern sense of being brazen, like just going off and doing what I, whatever and you know, I just don't care what other people think about me. No, it is having nothing to hide and then having no reason to hide it. It is looking out for one another. It is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It is all of those things. And it is all of those things toward all people. It evokes this image of flourishing, of thriving together. What would it look like for you and for me to intentionally seek to live out shalom in our families, in our communities, and in this city? as individuals and also as a church community. I find this so convicting. It's been, it's a word that the Lord has just kept bringing back to my mind over the last few months. Shalom, pursue this, live this, be this way. I fail at it multiple times every day, but what if I and we together pursued this desire to be a pocket of shalom in Newcastle, in our families, in all of our relationships. What transformation would happen? What revival would happen of family relationships, of interpersonal relationships? Who could be restored and revived in this community? 
What, re what revival is possible when we who are at shalom with God our Father because of what Christ has done live out his shalom toward each other and toward our communities? Imagine that for a moment. Jonah's name, the dove, symbolizes peace, wholeness in every facet. Jonah is, or Yahweh is quite literally sending his peace to Nineveh in the same way that Christ, who is our peace, put on flesh, dwelt among us, and offers us life abundant. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria was known as the land of Nimrod, and Nimrod is mentioned in Genesis 10 as a man who began nine cities. One of them was Babel, another was Nineveh. He was the first post-flood renouncer of the Noahic covenant. He started the Tower of Babel. So Jonah's mission here is quite literally to go to the nerve center of rebellion, the hub, the locus, the focus of evil from the flood all the way through to Revelation. He is being directed very much against his desire to do what the Jew and the Christian are meant to do. Now, when we talk about wickedness, the Nineveh, that great city, cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me is what, what God says. Wickedness is the Hebrew word kamash. And according to some rabbinic sources, it is a specific level of violence or wickedness which devastates any opportunity for shalom. It is that point, it is pretty much a point of no return where judgment will be brought. Some of these sources also refer back to the people of Noah's day as being described as kamash, desiring only evil all the time. They point also to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and here to the people of Nineveh. So it is not just a little bit of sin here and there. It is the, it is just a, like an, almost an unquantifiable wickedness. And yet God wants to send his peace even there. It reminds me of the passage that says that God does not delight even in the de death of the wicked. So glad he doesn't. In response, we read Jonah 1.3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah in, in verse 1. Jonah seeks to flee from the very presence of the Lord here in verse 3. Now, some people take this to mean he just wanted to get away from Jerusalem because that's where the Shekinah glory of the Lord dwelt in the temple. Personally, I don't think that holds water. Jonah would have known Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There is nowhere we can get away. But it just shows the extent to which Jonah was running from God and the extent to which he hated this people of Nineveh. Jonah was simply running from Yahweh as far as he could in the opposite direction. Tarshish was possibly in modern day Spain. 
You'll note also in, in verse three, this, this downward progression. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship that was going to Tarshish. He went down into the ship. Just keep going down, down, down. And later we'll see him go down into the depths in the sea, down into the belly of the whale or whatever it was. In, in Hebrew, when they talk about up and they talk about down, there's a literal aspect to it and there's a figurative aspect to it. There's a, there's a material and also a spiritual reality to both of these. And these are showing that Jonah was going spiritually down and down. He was, he was confirming himself further and further in his rebellion, in his defiance against the Lord. And he didn't care who would suffer for it. But Tony gets to cover that one next week. Another thing that stands out is that he paid the fare to get on the ship. This would have, it would have been really, really costly to get from Joppa on the side of the Mediterranean all the way over to possibly Spain. And you have to go from one ship to the next, hopping like as, as many as you could to get to your destination. So it's a good reminder that sin is costly. And it doesn't just cost Jonah. As we'll see, even though he is meant to be a blessing to people, he comes and ends up being a curse to them because they will endure a storm and have to chuck all their cargo overboard and cost, possibly lose their lives. Where Jonah was meant to be a blessing, he ends up being a curse. But we also see, or we will see, that where Jonah brings a curse, God grants a blessing in spite of him. We will see that while Jonah may be running toward his own ruin and hoping it will confirm ruin on Nineveh, possibly delaying the destruction of Israel, Yahweh is running him and human history toward revival. And that revival will come to the pagan sailors and to an entire city, one of the greatest cities of that time, when they turn to him. And that revival comes to us as well when we seek the Lord. In Christ, who is our peace, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, called not to Nineveh, but to Nui and beyond. So may we be individuals and a church that brings peace, shalom, wholeness to our families, to our friends, to our communities, to this great city of Newcastle. May we also run toward revival. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are the God of all creation, that you are the God of all peace, and that you are the God who dwelt among us and brings us life. Lord, may you transform us through the renewing of our minds, through the scriptures, as we, as we seek to study you, not just in Jonah, but in our own personal studies. May you transform our families, our friendships, our workplaces, our communities, and this city, as we seek to serve you and as we seek to walk with you. For your glory, your honor, and your praise, we praise and pray all of this, and we thank you so much in the name of Yeshua, our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.